I've been thinking about a question this week as I look at this passage that Jacob read. And thank you. I love seeing our youth up here reading God's Word. The question that I've been thinking about is why is Jesus so often the last place we turn with our trials? We see two people in this passage, in this encounter with Jesus. They had one thing in common. They were both desperate. They were both at the end of their ropes. They had had run out of other options. And both of them came to Jesus in faith. The first one was a man named Jairus. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them and turn to Mark chapter 5, verse 21. It says, When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. You remember last week he had crossed over, set a man free from many demons, and that crowd begged him to leave. He gets back to this side of the sea, maybe Capernaum, and this group can't wait to see him. They, they gather about him. Verse 22 says, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Now, synagogue, as most of you probably know, that's the Jewish place of worship. They would gather there for scripture reading and, and prayer. And the synagogue leader did a lot of what Frank does. Like, Frank schedules who's going to read our Bible reading. So he called Jacob this week and said, Jacob, could you read? The synagogue leader would do that. He would schedule who would pray. Jairus was one of these synagogue leaders. And seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. That's a humble place for a well-respected synagogue leader on his face at the feet of Jesus. Begging Jesus. That's what implore means, imploring Him earnestly. What, what brought Him there? He said, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. My little daughter, it doesn't come across in the English. That's a Greek phrase. It's, it's a term of affection. And any of you who have ever had children, dads, if you've ever had a daughter, this man had this daughter for 12 years, probably the apple of his eye. And here she is at the point of death. Now think about Jairus as a synagogue leader. He had everything to lose by bowing himself at the feet of Jesus, right? Right? Why? Because many of the religious leaders oppose Jesus. We know that from what we've already seen in the book of Mark. But his desperation drove him where he may not have gone otherwise. We don't, we don't know where he stood with Jesus. Whatever the case, he humbled himself. You think about him. Later on, we, we learn that this little girl is 12 years old. 12 years with this little girl in their home. And now... A nightmare has come. She lies on the brink of death. And what does Jesus do? Verse 24, it just says, He went with him. We said over and over that Mark is the gospel of action. We don't see Jesus respond here. He just begins walking with Jairus to where his daughter is. Now I want to look at the second woman, second person, a woman End of verse 24, a great crowd followed Jesus and thronged about Him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians 
and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. This one tugs the heartstrings of anyone who knows what it is to have an ongoing health issue. Twelve years she had battled with this flow of blood. And really, where the synagogue leader had everything to lose with his reputation and everything, in some ways this woman had nothing to lose because not only did her disease cause her pain and suffering, because it was a flow of blood, if you look at Leviticus, it made her unclean so that she could not fellowship freely with other people in the community. It not only affected her physically, but, but socially as well. She had been living a 12-year nightmare. That, that's what brought her to Jesus. Mark, Mark said she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. Evidently, it wasn't cheap back then either and was no better but rather grew worse. Now this is one of the places where, if you know, the, the four accounts of Jesus, the Gospels, are written by four different men with different perspectives and backgrounds. This is one of the interesting places where you see that a little bit. When Luke wrote about this, he was careful to add in Luke chapter 8 that she could not be healed by anyone. Why do you suppose Luke added that? He's a doctor. A doctor would add that. And both were true and both come together to give us the full picture. This was bigger than anything the, the physicians could handle. Verse 27 says she had heard the reports about Jesus. And so she came up behind Him in the crowd and touched His garment. She doesn't come to Him face to face. She, she sneaks up through this huge crowd behind Him. Touched his garment, for she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Verse 29 says, Immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Wow. She would have left at this moment, I believe, if she could have. But Jesus was not done. With this woman. I, I love this part. Verse 30. Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. Immediately turned about in the crowd. And said, who touched my garments? And his disciples, ever the practical dudes, said to him, you see this crowd pressing around you. And yet you say, who touched me? Well, they're like, come on Jesus. There's hundreds of people here and you're talking about somebody touching you. Well, what do you what, what's going on here? And some have suggested that maybe they're even a little frustrated with Jesus' choice of actions here because they're on a mission, right? They're going to Jairus' house for this daughter who's on the brink of death. Maybe they're thinking, come on, Jesus, why this silly question right now with all these people? But Jesus had a purpose for that question. Who touched me? Who touched my garments? Verse 32, he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Why fear and trembling? Well, one, you're in the presence of Jesus. That's a reaction that happens at times in the Gospels. But two, as we mentioned, she was unclean according to the law. And to reveal that she had touched Jesus in that condition may put her in a spot of guilt or 
feeling the, the guilt of, of having done that. Not only that, for a woman to speak in public was, was rare in a setting like this. And for her to boldly proclaim the personal things that she had been going through and that were now healed in front of all these people, you could probably relate to her fear and trembling. But she told him the whole truth. And a great blessing came to her from the lips of Jesus. Verse 34, he looked at her and he said, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Can you see the heart of the Savior? She would have been content just to get the healing and sneak away, but he wanted so much more. He wanted relationship with her. This takes me all the way back to the garden. If you remember in Genesis chapter 3, when God comes looking for Adam and Eve and He says, where are you? What is that all about? And all through the Bible, it's about relationship. And He says, daughter. That's the only place Jesus used that term for anybody in the Gospels. And it reminds us of His title in Isaiah chapter 9. One of His titles was Everlasting Father. He, he views her in that light. You are, you're not just some lady that touched me for healing. You, you, you're my daughter. And, and your faith in me, your trust in me has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And that word peace, it's a whole lot more than just inner calm. That's what we think of. It goes back to the Hebrew idea of shalom. And I want you to listen to what he was saying to her. One man put it this way, not just freedom from inward anxiety, but that wholeness or completeness of life that comes from being brought into a right relationship with God. She left with so much more than she came looking for today because of the gracious, searching, pursuing eyes and heart of the Savior. It's beautiful. Now some of you say, what about Jairus? What about Jairus? Just like the disciples. Come on. That's what's going on. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, Jairus' house, some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now put yourself in his shoes. What's going through your mind right now? Jesus is left with you to walk there, and now He's delayed with this woman. Are you frustrated? Like, if only we had just kept going, or do you begin to doubt? What's going on in your mind? Watch Jesus. It says, overhearing what they said. Some translations say, ignoring what they said. I like that. Jesus, ignoring what they said. Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. When I, when I read of Jesus ignoring what they said, I, I hear kind of this holy defiance. Right? And the translation of do not fear, only believe, could be said, stop fearing, Jairus. Continue believing. And I think about that. Isn't that what we have to do many times in life when God tells us one thing that we know to be true in our circumstances? Say another. Stop fearing. Continue believing. What about the delay? How many of us would admit we, we have a timetable that's often different than the one God prefers to use? And we don't always appreciate 
His delays. Listen, G. Campbell Morgan said, there is always a meaning in His delay. I saw a bumper sticker in a grocery store parking lot this week that said, always late, but worth the wait. (laughs) It made me smile. And I thought about that in light of this situation. Is God ever late, truly? No, but sometimes we sure feel like He is, correct? But in His sovereignty and His providence, you can count on the fact that He is always worth the wait. Verse 37 says, Jesus allowed no one to follow Him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion. Some translations say uproar. People weeping and wailing loudly. Now this may sound foreign to you if you've ever been to a memorial or a wake or a funeral because in our country we like it quiet. You walk in it's very quiet other than a little soft music and soft speaking. But in this culture, the best mourning was loud. Loudly expressing your grief to the, to the place where wealthy people would actually hire extra mourners to make it louder. They would play flutes and sing these songs or chants back and forth to each other. They would tear clothes and head and uh, hair, excuse me, and, and clap their hands, expressing grief loudly. That's what Jesus walked into. Verse 39, and when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. You know what they did? Beginning of verse 40, they laughed at him. They saw the little girl lying there dead. They laughed at him. They put them all outside, took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. That phrase Talitha kumi is in the Aramaic. Most of the gospel is in the Greek. Mark wrote it down in Aramaic. Why? Many believe because as Peter told him what happened, he told him the exact language Jesus used at that moment. And Peter never forgot those words. And Mark wrote it down just as Jesus had said it. Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Some have wondered, are those the same words the little girl's mother used to wake her up in the morning? It could be translated, little lamb, I say to you, arise. Verse 42, immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Unless you think she was only truly sleeping, you need to understand that in Luke chapter 8, when Luke records this, it says when Jesus raised her up, her spirit returned. She was dead. But in Jesus' perspective, death is only temporary as sleep is temporary because He is the Lord of life. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. When I see moments like these in the Gospels, whether it's this little girl or the story of the young man at the town of Nain, a widow whose son had died and Jesus showed up at the ceremony and raised him, or, or Lazarus, 
I love that one because later on Jesus is at a meal at his house and it says Lazarus was one of those reclining there with them at the meal. I'm like, what was that conversation like over that meal? Every one of these people that Jesus raises up, every one of these moments is like a fault line or a small earthquake that, that points forward to the ginormous earthquake that happened on Easter Sunday when the Lord of life himself rose again. An earthquake to the kingdom of Satan and death and sickness. Earl Ellis said it like this, like its younger brother's sickness, death is an enemy, but it must yield to the powers of the messianic kingdom present in Jesus. In the presence of Christ, death becomes a sleeping. Phineas is translated into prelude. Until his return, its sting remains, but its ultimate threat is broken. If we believe, we need not live in dread, fear not. When we look at His power in these stories, the power of this servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, King of kings, I ask the question, what if they hadn't come to Him that day? What if Jairus had not humbled himself at His feet? What if this woman had not come? In faith. Because listen, sometimes God does the miracle here. Maybe He's just waiting for you to ask. We heard a story this morning of a man named Rudy that Daryl and Sarah asked us to pray for about eight, nine weeks ago. Doctors had told him at that point he had one week to live. Eight weeks later, not only is he still alive, he's progressing. We've been lifting him up in prayer. Sometimes God does the, the, the work here. Maybe He's just waiting for us to ask. And we all know He doesn't always do the miracle we're praying for this side. What about in moments like that? Well, when you read accounts of Jesus' power like this and His sovereignty, you can know for certain if He chooses not to do the miracle, He's more than powerful enough to give you the grace and strength you need to persevere in the face of the storm that rages on. Corey Tenbu, as many of you know, helped a lot of Jewish folks during the time of World War II. Most of you know some of her adult stories. I did not know about her close relationship with her father growing up. That was a big thing that shaped her faith and her walk with Jesus. She shared a story in the hiding place of something he passed on to her that I think you'll find encouraging too. In the neighborhood, a family had had a little baby that passed away. And Corey and her sister and her mom went over there with some bread and food. And the little baby was still in the crib. And little Corey as a child, she writes, At last I put one finger on the small curled hand. It was cold. Death had been only a word. Now I knew it could really happen. If to the baby, then to mama, to father, to Betsy. That night as father stepped through the door to tuck us in, I burst into tears. I need you. I sobbed. You can't die. You can't. Father sat down on the edge of the narrow bed. Corey, he began gently, when you and I take the train to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? 
I sniffed a few times considering this. Why, just before we get on the train. Exactly, Father said, and our wise Father in heaven knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. These accounts also always give us hope as we look at the Lord of life that one day, whatever we go through this side, He will make it all right. He is the, the resurrection and the life. Martin Luther, the great reformer in the Protestant Reformation. I never knew until this week that he had a 14-year-old daughter named Magdalena who caught the plague. And he stayed by her bedside begging for the Lord to spare her life. Release her from the pain. She died. But as the carpenters were, were nailing the lid onto her coffin, he screamed out, Hammer away. On doomsday, she will rise again. His faith was there even in that dark moment. Why? Because of things like we've read today, because of 1 Corinthians 15, 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Christ. That's what enabled him to shout that in defiant faith at his own daughter's funeral. These accounts also give us hope at the power of his resurrection power that is in work inside of believers. His resurrection power is inside of you if you're a believer. Romans 6. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. You see, His resurrection power gets very practical every time we find ourselves at those moral crossroads. If you're a believer, you don't have to give in to sin. You live a new resurrection life in the power of of Jesus Christ. As we close, I, I think about a couple important ideas. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. One of the benefits when we read these true historical accounts of Jesus and His power, they inspire faith in us. Faith comes from hearing. 
You read about a Savior like that? That's a Savior you want to put your trust in. Psalm 145.5 says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. I read that verse yesterday in my quiet time. Then I went out for my run and purposely, the Lord helped me train my thoughts on the splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. And I began to rehearse in my mind pictures of God that we, that we have throughout the Bible. Events like the, the Red Sea, the, the resurrection, the ascension. Because it's as we focus on the splendor of His majesty and the wonder of His works that faith rises up within us. It's not as we stare at our circumstances. It's as we stare at Him more and more. So as we look at these last few weeks, His power over the stormy sea, nature... Power over demons, power over disease, power over death itself. We have come face to face with the mighty servant of the Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is resurrection and life. I think the practical question for us this morning is, will you come, whatever you brought in here this morning, whatever you carried in that's weighing you down, will you bring it to Jesus in faith? I like what Ralph Earl said here about the woman. He said, while the multitudes were pressing against him, only one person touched him by faith and received a blessing. One wonders how often this is true of the crowds that throng into churches on Sunday morning. Listen, in the next few minutes, I invite you to bow your head, close your eyes, whatever you're carrying, bring it to Jesus. Father, as I think about that last statement from Mr. Earl, I can't get around it. It, it forces us all to a question. Which am I? Am I the person here this morning that's pressing into Jesus in faith? Or am I just one of the masses, not aware of who it is we've looked at this morning? Who it is that invites us to salvation if we'd only repent and put our faith in Him. Who it is that invites us to abundant life and hope, grace and strength. Lord, draw us whatever it is we need to bring to You this morning. Maybe it's to come to You for the first time and embrace You as Savior and Lord. Maybe some of us need to ignore some of what people around us are saying and take you at your word. Maybe some of us need to stop leaving you as a last resort and bring our burdens to your feet this morning. Lord, please work. I don't know all the needs, but you do. You know each one. It's like you knew Jairus and that woman. You're looking for a relationship. We'd be foolish not to take you up on it. Please draw us in. Father, I pray for us as a church that you'd help us to be faithful stewards this message of this pursuing God who came to seek and save what was lost and bring shalom into our lives. 
through faith in Jesus. Help us as we take our offering this morning to to worship you out of grateful hearts. Can't imagine the gratitude that Jairus had and his wife. The gratitude of this woman. What gratitude we ought to carry day by day and proclaim boldly after all you've done for us. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.